All right, well, hello, everyone. It's been a while since I've seen some of those little faces out there. We were in uh, Seaside last weekend. That was glorious. We went to a great little church in Cannon Beach, if you're ever there. Uh, Cannon Beach Bible Church, I think was the name of it. Really hard to remember. Uh, but I, there was a man who was, like, in his 90s who had been a pastor for 31 years filling in for the preacher there. And I, uh, you know, as a Baptist church, um, eschatology is always a thing. So the sermon was on the Antichrist. <laughs> And he went a completely different direction than I was expecting. It was awesome. So if you guys were ever down in that area, it's a great little church. It was wonderful. And I hear Jared did a great job here. So thank you, Jared. Filling in. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel 10. We're going to be covering the whole chapter. It was read for us, the version from Chronicles. It's the same story. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, These poor gentlemen who had half their beard cut off. I can't even imagine such a thing. Horrible, horrible atrocities of war. <laughs> so next week is actually Ascension Sunday, so we'll be um, looking into that next week, and then the week after that is Pentecost. So this will be the last Samuel sermon for two weeks, um, and then we'll come right back to it when David's big failure. And I'm going to need a couple more weeks on that one. But today we're going to be looking at Second Samuel 10. So let's pray before we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the ministry of David and his work as king of Israel, Lord, and and the typology and the promises that are alive in him, his uh, constant demonstration of what a a, a Christian ought to um, be like, how he ought to live his life, how he ought to serve you, uh, how he ought to lead, how he ought to love his neighbor. We thank you, Lord, for this story this morning. We pray that as we open it, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, that you would teach us how to train dragons. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, this section that we're in, chapters 8 through 10, what we've seen is how David brings peace to Israel, both internally and externally. There's internal uh, enemies. There are external enemies. And in chapter 8, he, he went to war and he actually went on a war of aggression and brought peace to Israel. In chapter 9, we had the beautiful story uh, of him bringing peace between his household and Saul's household through this word that we keep mentioning, said. said now, uh, if you thought I mentioned it a lot up till now, I'm going to mention it and mention it and mention it. Okay, this idea of you said, this idea of loyalty shown for loyalty received is what is at the heart of these stories. It's what he showed to Jonathan's son, to Saul's grandson. Now he's going to show the same you said in chapter 10 to his neighbors. The, the king there who showed kindness to him has died, and so he, he wants to mourn, and he sends a delegation. And the delegation is received badly. The delegation is first falsely accused, and then, oddly enough, not punished, because if you are actually spies, the only thing for you is a rope. Uh, That is universally true. Uh, If you're caught as a soldier, you get shot. If you're caught as a spy, you get hung. And so why these men were not hung is a good question. Why were they humiliated? Why were they first falsely accused and then humiliated? Is it because they did not really believe the lies they were telling about these men? These men then were sent back, and, and... David's love, David's said, David's faithfulness brings about a war. And that is something that we're going to talk a great deal about. His faithfulness to, to his neighbor, his love for his neighbor, is actually uh, what brings about this war. And this raises a lot of questions. 
Now, if you're David's servant, wouldn't you ask, why, why is the king sending us into this other land to be humiliated and shamed this way? Right? What kind of king is this? David would ask the same question. What kind of king is my God, Yahweh, who, who through my love of my neighbor, would so unbelievably humiliate his own people? There, th- this is a difficult chapter, if you think about it. David's faithfulness leads to humiliation and shame, leads to war. David, who, resp- who responds to the death of a neighboring king with love, is met with hostility and aggression. Now, there, it's rather in vogue these days in the Christian circles to think that if we just loved enough, we would be loved in return. And what I find in this story is actually what happens most often. Our love does often lead to shame and humiliation. Our love leads to war. And, and why does God do that? Why does he use love as a pretext to bring war? Why would God allow David's love to be received with reviling? Why is David's faithfulness the source of his people's persecution? And what does this Job-like situation teach us about the God that we serve and our own circumstances? Right? I thought he was a God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And how does he bring peace, though? We've been reading about Yahweh now for some time through the book of Samuel. And this is the God of peace, but how has he brought peace thus far? So let's dig in with that kind of introduction. Woo, this is going to be some spicy stuff, I think. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David, his servants, and shaved off half their beard, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I feel you guys. I feel you. <laughs> now, the expression deal loyally in verse 1 is that word you said. There it is. It's, a, it's amazing how many different ways they translate it, but it's the same word. Now, this you said that he wants to show this king's son is the same Loyally, you said that this king showed him. It's the same word that was used in 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 3, when it was, we were talking about Jonathan's son. In each chapter, 9 and 10, faithfulness to a covenant lies behind the words. You said, loyally, loyalty shown for loyalty received is what happens when two people are covenanted together. A husband and wife are showing you said to one another. We are showing you said to God when we are faithful to the covenant that he has made to us. His yesed, his loving kindness, is the way that he is described again and again and again in the scriptures. David showed kindness to Jonathan's son because of the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Afterward, David shows kindness to the son of Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, because of the yesed that Nahash had shown David. Somewhere along the way, Nahash had shown kindness to David. We don't know the story. We don't know the details. But he was a Gentile. 
And yet he treated Yahweh's anointed with respect. He treated him with loyalty. It says in Psalms, Psalm 2, that famous psalm, whoever kisses God's son, God, God's anointed, he will be blessed and he, he's a wise man. So this unbeliever is drawn to David, drawn to God's anointed, is respecting God's anointed. And this is what David has been doing all along. He's bringing Gentiles into the kingdom. He's bringing Gentiles before the throne of God just like his greater descendant Jesus will do. Now, though David showed kindness in both chapters, in, in, in chapter 9, it was received well. In chapter 10, it's not received well. Now, David and the Ammonites do not have the same father, either tribally or spiritually. Okay, The king who has died did, but it seems that he didn't pass it on to his son. David imitates his father in heaven by showing sympathy and kindness to unbelievers, which is received with contempt and humiliation and shame. David is demonstrating to us what it means to live, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who, who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, David is a busy man. He's got a lot going on. But he has time to remember the son of his dead friend. That's what chapter 9 was about. He remembers people. He remembers the loyalty that they showed him. He remembers the kindness that they've given him. And he, in turn, shows loyalty and kindness. He doesn't care that they're Ammonites. Right? This is very different than the Israel that Jesus will find. Right? He, he has no problem with unbelievers, non-Israelites, outsiders. He has no problem with them. He will show kindness even to those enemies of Israel. He will weep with those who are weeping because he has a heart like God's heart. Now, in response to the suspicions expressed by his advisors, Hanan reversed the policy of his father and by insulting David's ambassadors, asserted his independence from Israel. That's, I think, what's at the heart of this. I am my own man, okay? I don't bow and scrape to no Israelite king. What's wrong with you people? Now, this conspiring here is, again, Seen in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3 say, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. I will be a vassal state no longer. He listens to the advisors. And what's their motivation? We're not going to bow and scrape to no Israelite king. We are our own men. Watch, we, we can go out and pay for soldiers. Right? You have to pay for soldiers. How grown up are you? How big of a kingdom do you really have when you've got to pay for troops from another nation? It's kind of funny. Now what, goes on, what happens, like Psalm 2, is this hostility towards God anointed is going to lead to a rod of iron. That's what we're going to see. It's quite clear in Psalm 2, you kiss the sun or he will crush you. And here's the opportunity. Hanan doesn't kiss the sun, doesn't show respect to the anointed of the Lord, and so the, the rod of iron is going to come. Now, let's talk about this accusation for a moment, because there's actually a very important principle here, and, and, and these Ammonites are, are, help us understand people in our own day. Right? Congress is full of Ammonites. Mass media is full of Ammonites. Facebook is full of Ammonites. The false accusation, and it is false, we know that David did not send them as spies, but it's an old trick. It's a good trick. If, if you want to create some hostility with another nation, you accuse their delegation, uh, right, their, their, the delegation that comes, you accuse them of wanting to spy on you. And this gives you just cause now to go to war. Uh, Hitler tried this trick. Joseph tried this trick in Genesis 40, 
42, he accuses his brothers of spying out the land, so then he has a pretense to arrest them. This is a great trick, by the way. If you're ever, if you're ever a dictator and you want to start a war and, ha- and look good doing it, you just accuse people of being spies. The false accusation is a good excuse to humiliate David's ministers. Again, they don't hang them for it. They humiliate them. If they're really spies, you hang them from a tree. You don't cut off half their beard and send them away. Because why? They actually spied out the land. If, if, the, if what you were worried about was them coming to get information, they've gotten the information and you just sent them back. So clearly you're not really worried about them taking information back. Now all of this sets this up quite nicely. Whose children are the Ammonites? Well, we turn to John chapter 8, verse 44. This is what we read. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemies of the church do not believe in a universal standard, and yet they are willing to clutch their skirt and cry foul at violations of that universal standard. These men are, are accusing the, this delegation of an actual war crime. Now, just war theory is, is an ancient thing. It goes back a long way. When you send a delegation, they're officials, right, ambassadors. Things are not that different in this day than in our own day. And what do ambassador, ambassadors get? They get immunity. Right? You, don't get, you don't have to pay parking tickets. You can't be charged with murder. <laughs> right? You get diplomatic immunity. So these men have diplomatic immunity, and yet they're falsely accused. How dare you, David, send spies? We're over here mourning our dead king. How dare you? Now, do they believe in a universal ethic? Well, clearly not, because they're willing to lie. And yet, are they going to use a universal ethic of warfare in order to cause trouble with David? Yes. Now, I hope you're following my logic. Because this is what worldly people always do. They go from false accusation without trial to punishment. Now, does that ring familiar to anybody? We're going to falsely accuse you, and before we really know what's going on, what we're going to do is punish you. Progressive secularists only believe in a universal standard when it applies to others, when it can be used as a weapon. For example... Why does a culture with no sexual boundary of any kind care that a president of a Christian college would run off with the head of the English department? Now, when this happens and the world lights its hair on fire, oh, look at the hypocrites, my question is always like, why do you guys care? Why do you care? He's just living his best truth now, right? How How dare you be so judgy? But that doesn't work, does it? No, because as soon as it's a Christian who's doing something like this, as soon as it's an opponent that they don't like, the the universal standard that they clearly undermine at every turn suddenly is the thing that they're using as a weapon. (laughs) He's just living his best life now, you judgy liberals, right? If you ran away with a cat, you'd probably care less. They can't explain why this action is wrong. Why is what this guy has done with the, English, the head of the English department wrong? As soon as you can tell me that, as soon as you can tell me there's a universal standard we're all supposed to uphold, we will use that same universal standard to try and convict this person. They will use every opportunity to cancel anybody that they label an enemy by appealing to universal ethical standards that they otherwise undermine and malign at every turn. One of the most effective strategies of... 
progressive secularism is using an ethic they don't believe in against Christians without upholding the necessary due process. Forget proof. It's the seriousness of the charge that matters. Now, if you guys have not heard that phrase, that is a phrase that's, that's very popular right now. I don't really care if he did it. That accusation is so severe that we have got to take it seriously. And you're like, okay, well, um, you jumped some logical steps there, I think, right? The seriousness of the charge is, eh, who cares about the seriousness of the charge? What matters is whether he did it. Believe women. I don't know if you've heard that before. That's a political slogan. Believe women. Hashtag me too, right? Now, you guys have heard this. Believe women. When a woman makes an accusation against a man, we believe her. That's it. It's a movement in the progressive left. You just believe all women, unless, of course, you're Johnny Depp. (laughs) He gets his day in court because Captain Jack Sparrow is a national treasure. Right? We don't believe Mrs. Hurd just because she's accusing him of something. Forget witnesses. Forget burdens of proof. Forget processes of justice. Okay? Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh, they, tried to, they, they did this to him. The seriousness of the charge was enough to not make him a Supreme Court justice. Forget the fact that none of it was true. Forget the fact that all of it was made up. Forget the fact that they went, like the Ammonites, from accusation to punishment. We are fighting an enemy that does not fight fair, though it fights fiercely and cunningly. And we all keep falling for it. (gasps) Oh, yes, there is an ethical standard. Oh, my gosh, we're all going to jump on this bandwagon and hate this person, and and we're going to cut their beard off and cut their clothes. We're going to go right to punishment, because you're right. We care about ethics. We care about the law. We care about justice. Wait. If we care about justice and there is an accusation, you don't go from accusation to punishment. You go from accusation to trial, from trial to punishment, and a punishment that's fitting. None of these half measures don't cut off half their beard. You hang them from a tree. If they really did it, that's what they deserve. But why is it that they're all suddenly soft on crime? (laughs) Because they didn't really do what they are accused of doing. Like the Ammonites, modern secularists move from accusation to punishment. Sending spies disguised as diplomats diplomats is a serious affront to Ammonite sovereignty. I would support the Ammonites in putting them to death if that were true. Now, this is actually something that Paul talks about that has confused Christians for a long time. What the Ammonites are doing, what modern secularists are doing, is using the law unlawfully. Now, think about that for a second. They're using the law unlawfully. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. A congressional hearing or the drive-by media is a court of murderers, the sexually immoral, liars, perjurers, and the profane who use the law lawlessly. When they start spouting accusations against police officers and politicians and pastors or anyone who blasphemes the current idols, don't take the bait. Don't share the video. 
right? I don't know how many times, even, even policing is something I know a little something about. You know what they always have? Another angle. And I don't know how many times I've had to say this to people. I don't care what the video shows. You know what there is? There's another angle. And I'm going to withhold judgment until I've seen at least four of them. And even then, I'm going to leave it to a jury. Because a jury is actually going to hear all the facts. This, this, we, we are all behind this idea where you go from accusation to punishment. We go from accusation to we have all the knowledge we know. We know that this person is guilty. Cancel. But we have got to stop taking the bait. If they're going to admit that there is a universal standard, let's talk not about this individual case, but the universal standard. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the universal ethical standard, not only of morals, but of justice. What is the rest of the story? Anyone who moves from accusation to punishment is an Ammonite, the son of Satan. Now, Instead of receiving the condolences and treating David's men with the respect that they deserved as diplomats, Hanan seized them, cut off their beards, and cut the clothes to the hip. Now, this is one of those times where I find Bible translations quite funny because they didn't cut the clothes to the hip. What the Hebrew says is they cut the clothes so low that their butts were exposed. So now they're walking around with half a beard and the butts hanging out. Now, why the ESV would want to whitewash that is obvious. Okay, but it's important for us to actually, these men are, in a sense, exposed. Okay, I don't want to see their chins, and I don't want to see their derrieres. The the intention here was to mock mourning customs. Because when you're in mourning, you tear out hairs of your beard, and you tear your clothes. And so they're mocking David. Oh, yeah, you're going to weep with those who weep? Here, let's let's cut off half their beard and tear their clothes and send them back. And so what does this have to do with justice? What does this have to do with the fact that they might actually be spies? Did anybody actually find out? Anybody, anybody give them a toss and see if there's any documents in the camels that they need to check out? Is there any, any drugs in the trunk? Like, did anybody actually look at these guys and what they might be doing? No, we're just going to go right to humiliating them and making fun of David and sending them back. Now, cutting the beard <laughs> is an assault on masculinity. I can testify to that. Okay? It causes a man shame. Other, more importantly than that, in Israel, men were not allowed to cut the corners of their beard. Leviticus 19.27. Don't cut the corners of your beard. Also, you're supposed to wear um, tassels on your robe, according to Numbers 15.37-41, that remind you of the word of God. And so not only did they make them less man- manly, they cut the word of God. They separated them from the word of God. It, it, it's not just humiliation they're going after here. They're mocking them as Israelites. Oh, you're not supposed to cut your beard. Here, you lost half of it. Oh, you're not supposed to take off these tassels on your robe. Cut off half of them. The garment that they are, they are wearing, that it refers to in the text, is actually an official uniform. Okay? They, they are the diplomatic corps. The diplomatic corps was sent to the Ammonites, and the, and the Ammonites treated them disdainfully. Now, for as long as there's been nations, this kind of thing is an act of war. If if, If they send a delegation and you abuse them in this fashion, it is a delegation or it is a declaration of war. This has happened many, many times. The XYZ affair was a famous one in American history where John Adams had every right to go to war with France, but he refused to do so because they humiliated our delegation. They didn't quite cut off their beard. They tried to bribe them to become spies. But this is the kind of thing that if you read history, the history of warfare, the history of nation 
and, and politics, there, there is a way to treat diplomats, and there's a way not to treat diplomats. And what they are doing is provoking Israel into a war. Now, here's my question. If David has a heart after God, which he does, why doesn't he simply say to the Ammonites, fine, we'll turn the cheek and you can cut off the other half? Cut off the other half, fine, whatever, it's just a beard. Take the other half of my robe, I'll walk around naked, that's what the prophets are going to do. Now, we misunderstand the Prince of Peace a great deal. And one of the ways is through this. If, if David was godly, wouldn't he just say, turn the other cheek? But, but he is godly, and he doesn't do that. So what does that tell us? That tells us that we don't understand the verse. And, and there's something about headship here that we also don't understand. That's what it reveals. Because he, this is what it means. If, in, in the first century Roman culture, if, if a man was insulted, right? You've seen this. It's the southern version of it. You take off your glove. If you're going to have a duel with a man, and you swipe it across his face. And it's throwing down the gauntlet. And there was a similar thing in Rome. You, you, you backhand a man. It's supposed to degrade him as a man. And Jesus says, don't worry about that kind of thing. If somebody does that to you, turn your cheek. And everybody ought to say yes and amen. If I'm walking down the street and a guy comes up to me and he backhands me, biblically I am de- I'm commanded to turn and let him smack the other one. But let me just throw out a little, here's an idea for you. If I'm walking down the street and a man walks up and slaps my wife, what am I supposed to do? Right? I know some forest roads. That's all I'm going to say. Right? There's many dark alleys in Seattle. <laughs> it, I, I am a godly man if I turn the other cheek when they slap me. If they, if they slap my wife and I say, hey, baby, turn your other cheek so you can get a good one on the other side. I'm not a godly man. And that is something that's going on here. David literally is concerned not with the fact that they've invaded Israel, but the fact that they've disrespected Israel. And, and to many Christians, that seems awfully petty, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem awfully petty, David? Get over yourself already. But David is the anointed of the Lord. He is the king of Israel. They haven't just disrespected these de- this delegation. They've respected, disrespected David. And by disrespecting David, they've disrespected Yahweh. And he is not going to stand for that. And I think that there is a huge lesson for us here. We have become largely pacifists in areas where we are not to be pacifists. And, and, and yet, we still miss the, the lesson to turn the other cheek when it's personal affrontery. Right? This is how Paul would have been. I don't care about me. I care that you are maligning the other apostles and I'm going to go to war with you over it. Right? If you're going to do something to my family, watch out. I would not declare war on me. Now, if you're going to come and smack me around, fine. Okay? Fine. We have an obligation to fight when, it, when, it, when the reputation of our wives, the reputation of our children, the reputation of our family, the reputation of our church is at stake because they're not just dishonoring us. They're dishonoring the God that we serve. And there is a great deal here that we could use a lot of. Now, David's said did not prevent a war. His said to Yahweh, his said to Yahweh's people demands that he... Man's up and goes to war now. His, his, his loving kindness and his loyalty to his own people supersedes this effrontery. Now they're going to pay. Now they're going to get what they want. If they want a war, David will deliver it to them. He did not fail to engage in the conflict that came to his door, even though it came through his own faithfulness. 
He's faithful to God. He's faithful to his neighbor, and it, and, and, and it creates conflict. And he doesn't say, well, we don't do conflict. We do conflict. <laughs> if you're going to bring conflict my way in this regard, I'm going to rise to the occasion. And what's at stake here is what is called the antithesis. Okay? He, David's not surprised that this has happened. The antithesis is what's going on here. If you, if you think of Genesis 3.15, that's the crux of human history. That's the antithesis. And Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There is a war going on between two families, the sons of Satan and the sons of God, that has been going on since the beginning of human history. David is in the middle of it. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, makes this offhanded comment that I think is fascinating because he doesn't explain himself in Mere Christianity when he says this because in his day you didn't have to explain it. He says Christianity is a fighting religion. Now, modern Christians are like, whoa, C.S. Lewis, British gentleman much? What's going on here? It's a fighting religion. Why? Because there is a war going on between the sons of the the Ammonites, the liars, the sons of Satan, and, and the sons of God, Yahweh, his anointed, his people, who will not stand for this kind of thing. When we find ourselves in conflict, conflict, we should not wonder how we got there. Why is God doing this? Why is he using my faithfulness in this fashion? Why am I suddenly, why am I loving people and being maligned? Should I stop loving people? No. You should love your neighbor. You should have you said for your neighbor. You should have you said for your coworkers. Is that going to cause conflict? You bet. Okay? And depending on the circumstances, you either turn your cheek or you sharpen the sword. It's not whether one fights. It's how one fights. And that's what the story... Now, now that it's set up this way, we're going to see that it's how one fights is the important thing. Because what's David going to do? He's not going to go and capture a bunch of their men and shave off half their beards. No, he's not going to retaliate in that same way. He's going to send... Joab, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 6 through 12. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when excuse me, David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob, and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of the men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother. He arrayed them against the Ammonites, and he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, Christian warfare requires a number of things, as we learn from Joab. It requires wisdom, it requires courage, it requires unity, and it requires faith. And Joab demonstrates all of these qualities. The Ammonites expecting reprisals. They know that they've become a stench. They've gotten what they want. They are prepared for battle. They have hired mercenaries. The combined forces of these lands are huge. It's huge army that they have. Joab is seen here to advantage. He did not panic in the face of daunting odds. He didn't look around Seattle and say, how in the world are we going to do this? We're surrounded on every side. 
he looked at Seattle and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to divide in two. And I'll take the special forces, <laughs> and me and the special forces will go and fight them. And Abishai, you get everybody else, and you go and fight them. He did not see with his eyes, his physical eyes, and sh- shrink back from what was before him. He took the most difficult task himself. He took the hand-picked troops. He went and fought, and he sent Abishai to fight. Now, if the Arameans began to triumph over Joab, Abishai was to save Joab. But if the Ammonites began to defeat Abishai, Joab would save Abishai. This is Christian brotherhood. We will go into our respective lines of battle, and we will fight. And if I see that you're faltering, I will come to your aid. If you see that I am faltering, you come to my aid. This is mutual aid amid conflict. This is Christian brotherhood. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. This is Paul. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is seen in the early church, Acts Four, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Two Christian households. One's looking across the other side and says, you know, they're down in the trenches and it's not going so well. And so let's go to their mutual aid. Let's go aid them. Right? And if you're in your trench, in your household, you should expect that if things start to go wrong, that the other households that, you are, that are, you're in fellowship with will come to your aid. This is how Christians are supposed to fight, together. Together. Even though they're divided, they have different missions, right? Each household has a slightly different mission. You have different marriages, different children, different things going on. But in the midst of the fighting, they are supposed to support one another. One's need is an opportunity for another's abundance. This one anothering is the heart of the law of Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We are in need to receive. That's why God creates need in your life, so that he may give to you. Right? Everything was fine. But David, through his faithfulness, gets tangled up in this war, and now the Israelites are surrounded. Why? So that they could rely on one another. Now, does that seem cruel of God? Do you think, look at God and be like, why would you do this to your own people? Well, now, are they stronger or weaker? We receive to fill what others lack. We receive to give. God creates a need within us. He pours out more than what we need. That's the way he works. The cup runneth over. And we have so much abundance because there are other people in our community who are in need. And that grace that gets poured into one... Have you ever seen those champagne like pyramids where they pour the glass on the top and it just sort of flows to all the other glasses? So decadent. But that's what grace looks like. Jesus is in heaven with this unemptying bottle of champagne just filling the glasses. He's like, who else? We're going to bring some other people? We're going to add some tears to this thing or what? This bottle's not going to empty itself. Joab then says, be strong. He says it four times. And this is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men and be strong. 
Now, that strength is the fact that they may need their brother. Okay, it's not strong like the world is strong. It's not strong like be, go out in the world and be strong. You're the lone ranger. You need nobodies. No, the strength that he's talking about, be strong because know that I will come to your aid and I will be strong because I know that you will come to my aid. And that unity and that mutual support is the strength that they have as the people of God. It's not the strength like the world has it. Now next, Joab encourages them by saying that his men were fighting for the people and for the cities of our God. He reminds them why they're there. Why are we here? We're here because of God's people. We're here because of God's cities. And in this, and you're welcome, Jared, I'm reminded of that great captain of Gondor in the Lord of Rings, Lord of the Rings, Faramir. You guys remember Faramir? One of the greatest things Tolkien ever said through Faramir, the captain of Gondor. This is what he said. War must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. I love only that which they defend. Why is he good with a sword? Because he defends something. Why is he good with an arrow? Because he defends something. He doesn't love the arrow. And this is where men who love their M16s, because the M16 is beautiful, don't get it. Right? I love my Glock 45, I'll say it out loud, and I love it because of what I defend with it. I love my Bible because of what I defend with it. I love the sword, not for the sake of the sword, but for the sake of what the sword defends. Christians fight because they defend something. War is a means, not an end in itself, And all the little Facebook warriors need to remember this. We don't go to war because we love war. We don't go to war over the doctrines of grace. Think how absurd that statement is all by itself. Because we love war. We love grace. We love our children. We love our wives. We love our brothers and sisters. And that is why we do apologetics. That is why we do evangelism. That is why we go to war. Loving war for its own sake is to be an Ammonite is to be an unbeliever, to be someone who does not know the Lord God. There is Joab, and he's saying to his men, be strong, be strong. Rely on one another. Remember what you're fighting for. And Christians in this day and age, more than ever, need to be reminded of what they're fighting for. What are you defending? Right? I don't want to work with hired guns. Don't give me hired guns. Don't give me men who just simply are good at fighting. Give me a man who's defending his wife. Right? There, there's a famous line from a general, and, and he said, I think it was Napoleon, he said, give me 10,000 men who are defending their homes, and I will conquer the world. Now, that seems a little, right, because then they're no longer defending their homes, but you get his point. Now, finally, Job reveals himself to be a man of faith, leaving the outcome of, to, to the Lord God, praying, not expressing, right, not asking for victory. He doesn't say, hey, God, give us victory. He says, God, do whatever you want. Now, that's not fatalism. That's faith. Joab is aware that the outcome rests in God's hands. He resolves himself to this, focusing on the thing that he can control, which is his own obedience. 
leaving God in heaven to do as the Lord wills with what Joab cannot control. All you can control is your own obedience. That's it. You can either decide to obey or not. You can't control the weather. <laughs> you can't control the numbers. You can't control whether you die. You can't con- control whether you're running out to the front lines and trip and fall on your own sword. You can't control anything. All you can do is do what God commands you to do. And that's what Joab did. I'm going to do my bit, and you do your bit, and we'll see what happens. Now, Job is a lot like, or Joab, sorry, is a lot like Job in this instance. We read in James 5, 10 through 11, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know him. So go to war. You know him. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. And what is the steadfastness of Job? Job chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Then his wife, Job's wife, said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Faith means we accept God's will. Steadfastness means that we put our hand to the plow and we don't look back, but to the heavens for the rain. Now, which, which either comes or it does not, blessed is the name of the Lord. Put your hand to the plow and get to work. The rain may come or the rain may not. Either way, God is good. Now, what we find here is that everyone, and, and this often happens in wars, when you show the kind of steadfastness that Job has here, everybody runs away. Because this kind of resolve is terrifying. This kind of resolve is terrifying. And that's something that we should learn, right? We think we're outnumbered until we actually show a little backbone. And it's amazing how easy it is to get the enemy to flee. Right? What, what did the apostles say? If you, right? Rebuke Satan, flee, right? If you, if you resist him, he will flee from you. Satan? Why? Because if you're, if you're steadfast and you resolve to obey Jesus Christ, even Satan will flee from you. But do you think some libs might? Do you think some unbelievers might? Do you think some Ammonites might? Now, they flee, but they're not destroyed. So we go on in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 15 through 19. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were behind the Euphrates. They came to Helam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadazar, at their head. And it was, it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men, 7,000 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, and he, that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. You fight your own wars now. The federation of the Aramean states was too powerful to take the defeat of Joab's hands as decisive. They were reinforced, and they take to the field again. So what is David, a man after God's own heart, going to do now? Well, this is quite interesting. He, he sent emissaries. He sent his representatives. And then he sent his general. And now what he's going to do is come down off of his throne and enter into the fray himself. He's going to rise up and lead Israel at the head of his men, just as Jesus would teach in his parable about the vineyard in Matthew 10. Remember that? 
There's a vineyard, and first he sends emissaries, and then he sends prophets, and then he sends the son himself. And, and what David is giving us is a little picture of the gospel here. I sent emissaries, and they were shamed. I sent my general, it was inconclusive. Now I'm going to come myself, and I'm going to hand it to these Ammonite sons of the dragon. Just as the Lord Jesus left his throne to go afield amid his own people, so David leaves his throne to lead men into the field of battle. David commands the army in person and wins a resounding victory against chariots and cavalry, even mortally wounding their commander. Not only the Arameans, but also their allies become his subjects. This meant that he consolidated the consolidated Israelite tribes have subjugated the powerful Aramean states to the east and north. They've secured control over the main trade routes that connected Egypt and Arabia with Syria and further afield. They've essentially not only whooped this army, they've taken economic control of the region. As a result, Israel gained political dominance and economic advantage. They're going to go on and they're going to become filthy, stinking rich. And the reason is because there's no one to defy them. Right? They own the New York Stock Exchange now. This whole chapter is a great foreshadowing of Mark chapter 3, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. David is stronger, and so he binds the strong man, and then Israel plunders the house of Hedadezar and his god, Hadad, which is Baal. David goes out at the head of his people, just as the incarnate Lord Jesus would descend to fight at the head of his army. He binds and defeats the strong man to plunder his house. Now, through the absence of conflict, through the absence, I'm sorry, not through the absence of conflict, but through victory, that's how they arrive at peace. They don't arrive at peace by not going to war. They arrive at peace by going to war and winning. And that is what people do not understand about the Prince of Peace. He doesn't bring peace to the world because he doesn't fight. He brings peace to the world because he wins and wins and wins. Jesus defeats his enemies on the battlefield, reversing the shame of our shaved beards and our torn clothes to lead a host of captives, to plunder the household. The sons of the dragon are thus tamed and trained, right? Now David says to them, come here, my vassal states, and do my bidding. This is how you tame dragons. This is how you train them, by beating them. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 4.8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, just like David. Here, you're in charge of that trade route now. Okay, you're in charge of that trade route now. Okay, you're in charge of the garrison over here in this kingdom. Don't let that vassal king be sassy. Smack him around a little bit. Keep everybody in line. Right? And if, and if we can, now that we have all these Gentiles listening to us, let's go and send some priests over there and teach them the gospel. Right? All this terrible war that they had. And look at all the good things that come out of it. The terrible war of the cross. And look at all the good things that come out of, came out of it. The plan has always been the same. Go and bring peace by winning. It is a, it's ironic that though David was 
acting out of loyalty and kindness, he ultimately did overthrow the city and receive the crown of the Ammonites. He said, don't trust those delegates because what they want is to take the city from us. And David had no intention of taking the city. His eye was on the kingdom of heaven, and yet he received all these things. It's those who have their minds most on heaven who do the most for this world. David wasn't interested in conquest, but he got it anyway. Why? Because he's faithful. David's said brought shame and war, but through that shame and warfare, it led to the expansion of Yahweh's kingdom. This is the way that God brings good out of evil. The wicked attack the godly, but it is simply God's way of bringing them out onto the battlefield where he can tame and train them by binding and plundering them. This is one aspect of the truth that by doing good, we heap coals on the heads of our enemies, a a truth that David knew long before Paul, who said in Romans chapter 12, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by by, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They're weeping over there. Don't be a bunch of snarky jerks about it. Go over there and weep with them and take what comes. And it's through all this faithfulness that all of this glory comes to them. It's through their faithfulness that that all these riches come from them, that all this victory comes from them. Why? Because they're more concerned about being faithful than they are about conquering. Right? War comes to them and they don't fade from it, but they don't go out and just cause war so that they can conquer things. When enemies attack the church or enemies in the church attack the faithful, it may be that God is bringing them out of the dark recesses and into the open where he can whoop them. That's it. Like, why? Why are we being persecuted? Why are we being surrounded? Because it's at that moment when we rely on one another, where we are courageous, where we look to the heavens to be delivered, and God says, watch me work. And it's there, surrounded, right? Where the Lord comes down off of his throne and fights out ahead of us and destroys his enemies. Sometimes God brings about conflict between his own people and the nations so that through victory and conflict he will bring peace. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you want to go to war? Repent. Be a faithful Christian and war will come. Right? I mean, there are people now who are like, Christian people call it like, you know what we need now is some persecution. Like, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? What are you even talking about? Is that what you want? You want dead babies? You want more of those? You want dead women? Right? You want open warfare? Is that what you want? You want people actually being dragged out of their churches and burned in the parking lot? Is that, is it, is that, have you read about the martyrs? No. How about, though we are surrounded, I rely on you and you rely on me. We look to the heavens for whatever comes. 
and through our yesed, we take the war that comes. And when it comes, not because we brought it about, but because God's circumstances brought it about, we rely upon the one who gives us victory. Because has he ever lost, even when it looks like he's losing? No. What, what, what is Christianity except a, a great number of victories cleverly disguised as defeats? Right? What, oh, we might die? Well, luckily, we serve the God who comes out of tombs. So this is the way to go. Let's do this. This is the way. Let's go. Now, what's really fascinating here is in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because the war that David entered into didn't end in the field, did it? It ended at the very gates of their cities. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. What are gates? Now, during World War I, do they go down to the front line in France and build gates? No, they built trenches. Gates are the thing you build at the edge of the city to keep people out. It's a defensive position. Jesus is telling Peter, you are going on the offense now, and their defense will not overcome you. And so why do Christians act like we're always on the defense? Well, look at they've arrayed against us. We're surrounded on every side. Yes, God has got them right where he wants them. Again and again. And he's like, watch me do it again. Watch me do it again. Watch me do it again. And you're sitting here in the bluest of blue. It's like purple. It's practically so blue. Dark. And you're like, what are we ever going to, what are we going to do? You're like, wow, you guys, watch what happened, right? Rely on one another. Be strong. Look to the heavens. This is the moment right before he does something super crazy and wins and brings the peace that we all long for, not through the absence of conflict, but through going purposely into conflict and winning. He won the cross by getting everybody to nail him to it. And, and, and in doing so, he won. And that's what he's going to keep doing. That's what he's going to keep doing. And this is the lesson that we need to learn, how to tame and train dragons. And you do it by whooping them. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your son and his ministry, Lord, his, his earthly ministry, for his self-denial, Lord, for his victory on the cross that looked like defeat, that makes all of uh, the seeming defeat that we incur victorious. We thank you, Lord, that on the other side of every grave here is an empty tomb on the other side. May we lay ourselves down. May we die to ourselves. May we bury our sorrows like seeds. May we, may we, Lord, have eyes of faith to see that other side where everything comes up in glorious, abundant life. We thank you for the victory of, of your son. We thank you for the battle that is uh, out our front door. And we pray that we would go and fight and be strong and that we would fight for what we defend and that we would rely on one another, Lord God, and that we would look to the heavens for whatever comes because you are good and you are merciful. And amen.